Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, and then I asked him, why did you do it? Why did you do it? And he just, he sort of looked at me, looked at me, looked at me, didn't say much for half a minute. And then he said, because it was the right thing to do. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 93 with the founder of TDA Global Cycling, Henry Gold. The son of a Holocaust survivor, Henry was born in Czechoslovakia and moved to Canada at 16 years old. After years spent managing an international NGO that delivered humanitarian assistance to disadvantaged communities in Ethiopia and Sudan, he set up the Tour de Afrique, a Cairo to Cape Town cycle expedition when he was 50 years old. This episode is chock full of stories of empathy, immigration, identity, civil disobedience, and so much more. It's an intense and insightful episode that drifted towards subjects that surprised and humbled me. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. If you want to learn more, then just head to sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They really do help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Henry Gold. Thanks very much for sitting down with me. I guess a um, logical place to start would be to just introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Um, so I'm Henry Gold. Um, uh, I was actually I was actually um, born in Czechoslovakia when it was Czechoslovakia. Um, I in a roundabout way I made my way to Canada in uh, in 1967. End of 67. I was um, almost 16. And this has been uh, essentially a base, a home. I'm a Canadian, but I've been working overseas and traveling. And um, and eventually, when I was 50, I set up this um, crazy company called, uh, at that time, well, it still registers Tour de Afrique, which the concept was to, to cycle, well, to race <clears throat> an adventure expedition from Cairo to Cape Town. Um, um, it was never attempted. There has been some individuals in the past who actually may have, may or may not have done the whole thing by themselves because the history books are are kind of very vague. Um, for many, many years, it was simply impossible to get through because of geopolitics and wars and famines and you name it. I actually worked in Ethiopia during the famine and Sudan uh, in 1984. 
Um, and um, in fact, got, my organization got quite a bit of money from uh, Band Aid and Live Aid and all of those. <laughs> Bob Geldof actually <laughs> came on our tour, uh, not our tour, our project site. And uh, by coincidence, and then he personally called me and said, What do you need? Um, so um, it was uh, it's it's um, um, because of that partially, um, and because of many other things, I set up this com- company. And if you want details, I'll give you the details later. Uh, I set up this company called Tour de Afrique, and in uh, in two thousand and three, um, we set up with um, myself and my at the time I had a business partner and thirty one cyclists to try to cross the whole continent uh, in one hundred and twenty days. Um, as I said, it was never done before. People thought I was suicidal. My friends thought that I, I, I lost my mind. Um, I think the only person who actually had full faith and never questioned that was my mother. <laughs> she was the only one who said, when I said, Mom, I'm doing this, I'm taking 30, 33 people plus staff plus other people across Africa. She said, I'll meet you in Nairobi halfway. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> so uh, if you ask me what makes me tick, uh, partially, obviously, it's my mother who, who had a very adventurous and uh, spirit and, and loved, uh, loved going places and talking to people and so on. Well, um, that's a really interesting segue, actually, because I was just about to ask what your childhood was like and what it was actually like growing up in Czechoslovakia. But as well as that, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your mother. You know, did she live an adventurous life or was it just her spirit? My mother is, um, it's actually in a book that came out this year called 999, um, which is a a tragic book. It's about the first transport of Jewish uh, young woman from Slovakia to the to Auschwitz. My mom was not in the first transfer. She was in the third transfer, but she's in the book because the, the people in the book who survive are all essentially friends. Um, and they talked about her and they get pictures of her in the book and, and they mention her in the book and so on. Um, she's, she was um, a prisoner, of, um, one of the original prisoners um, and, um, and she survived. And... Um, her story of survival, like every, everybody else of survival, <clears throat> um, is a lot of uh, luck and, and perseverance and determination and so on. Um, what made my mother unique as compared to many other people, after she, after she survived, she, she contemplated suicide because she lost everybody else, uh, brother, sister, large family. But once she got over that crisis, she basically decided, you know, there's nothing I can do. It wasn't my fault. I'm going to live. I'm going to live to the fullest. And she married a man who was very, very difficult, who made it very difficult to live well. <laughs> my father. Um, but she took every opportunity she had um, to enjoy herself and, and to celebrate life and to do things and to travel and, and be part of a community and, and make friends and so on. Um, and that spirit kept her alive till 91 plus, 91 plus. In fact, six weeks I was there, but we took her to a hospital, an emergency hospital, because her heartbeat was high. She told the doctor, doctor, I got to be out of here by the weekend because I have a ticket. I just booked myself to go see my daughter and my nep- and my grandchildren. Um, so she was uh, she was still planning ahead and, and, and 
wanting to travel and, and literally she did travel by herself in her 90s um, so um, she had that spirit and obviously I, she has impacted me in many ways yeah it sounds like it yeah um and so how much i mean it's obviously it's a huge amount but what impact did that have on your childhood that air of post-war and the experiences that your mother you had know had? I, we grew up in a countryside so in a countryside kids in those days anyway had no supervision you were outside you were doing you know we're chasing animals i had a bicycle from a very young age you know you were roaming around and and doing things, wild things. Um, we also had, you know, I, um, my, one of my earlier collections is uh, we had one cow and I had to take it to pasture. I had to go out with all the other kids uh, in the village. We went out there, we brought each of us had one or two cows and we played football or soccer uh, <clears throat> while the cows were out there. And, and, and then at the end of the day, we would go back. So, you know, kind of a very free uh, lifestyle. Um, I mean, I knew I was different than other kids um, in a sense that, um, you know, again, at a very young age, I remember my mother go, taking me to a remembrance, uh, World War II uh, remembrance, where she was asked to speak and she talked about her experience and adventure, uh, experience in, in, in Auschwitz. So I was aware that that my family went through, through very tragic times. I didn't have a grandparent, I didn't have cousins, I didn't have uncles. So that's the other thing that was kind of a you know you you wonder why but but um, but as i said you know you're outside you're playing you adapt you know and and my parents uh, again to my credit to my mom that she didn't bring it up in any ways unnecessarily you know when she would answer but she would never say anything you know i didn't survive this so that you do this or you do that or you know you give me a hard time etc quite opposite she was always encouraging and uh, and positive and so um, I, you know, I don't think I had any trauma or, um, and neither did my brother or my sister, but nevertheless, we are, you know, very impacted by the whole, uh, well, you know, by the whole situation, even, even 70 years later, we, we still are impacted by it. You, you can't, you know, everybody is, you know, we are, we are part of our environment, part of our heritage and, and so on. So on. I, I, I think. If anything, I think it impacted me. I often like to say that it impacted me often in a positive way. Because you can, you know, you have empathy for other people. Um, you know, I when I when I run this, uh, you know, I, 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 I set up an NGO, a non-for-profit organization that works in Africa, um, in Sudan, Ethiopia, as I mentioned, and other places. And when I was running it, I always tried to look for people, to hire people, people who, who had difficulties, whether they had a brother or sister who, who was somehow disabled or parents, etc., because I knew they had empathy. To me, empathy was one of the biggest things, you know, to send someone overseas and work in a difficult situation. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I, I always used to say to people, um, don't focus on the negatives, focus on, you know, it's a gift in a way you could give it. It's a tragic gift, but still a gift. Um, and as a result of that gift, then use what you, you know, use what you've been given, what use what you've been made aware of. Other people are not aware, and, and as a result, they do awful things. Um, if you are aware of it, then, you know, you can help and fix the world in some way. Yeah. I, I can't argue with that. <laughs> um, so I'm really interested how you went from this kind of rural upbringing in Czechoslovakia to 
to eventually obviously where you are now um did you study did you go on to to work what's the journey oh well uh you know, like many other immigrants, um, uh, you come to a new country and um, you go to school with the idea that uh, you're going to have to work afterwards. And um, um, I had, a, I suppose, an ease with math and, and, and uh, technical stuff. So um, from a very early age, I was sort of directed that I was going to be an engineer. Um and so when I graduated, I applied for engineering school and I got in. Uh, I ended up going to McGill University and got a degree in uh, electrical engineering. Um, and even though I thought I was going to be a bad engineer <clears throat> and I really didn't want to be an engineer, I, I you know, the pool, well, part of it is, is not only the pool of getting money, but, but the realization that you really, you know, there's no one else support you if you're gonna, not going to work. So I, I got a job as an engineer. I worked as an engineer for about eight years. I was uh, very unhappy. Um, I kept feeling that, you know, this is not for me. Life is passing me by. While I was an engineer, I kept taking different courses at night, everything from, you know, how to make movies to writing and directing and you name it. I, uh, in the morning, I, I, you know, during the day I went to, to to work, and in the evening I was look at some sort of a course, and uh, and that was part of my social life too, because there you meet a lot of people. Um, and then finally, after eight years, uh, coincidentally, um, I just I, I I kind of had enough, and uh, I decided I was going to go and travel um, to South America. I was going to spend a year uh, learning. Spanish there, etc. And on the way to the travel agency, I ran into a McGill friend uh, who um, who was actually um, helping another friend, a doctor, to set up this organization that was going to be working in Africa. Um, and we were just standing in front of this bar where he was meeting this Ethiopian doctor, and we chatted for a few minutes, and he said, Hey, listen, come on, come, come. Are you in a hurry? Come, I'll just have to interview the doctor and then, and then you can, uh, <clears throat> then we can catch up and, and talk, etc. And so I said, you know, I wasn't in a hurry. I was not in a hurry. So I said, sure, it'll be interesting to listen to an Ethiopian doctor um, who just came from the refugee camp. So I went. And then there, this Ethiopian doctor who said to him, you know, you want to send a medical team to Sudan to work with the refugees. You know, the most important thing is not doctors and not the nurse, but the administrator, the person who's going to make sure that everything is there to allow these people to work. Um, and my friend just turned around and he said, what are you going to South America for? Take this, do this. <laughs> and I said, you're crazy. <laughs> no, it's not for me. Uh, the truth is that, I, you know, we have something called CUSO here. Or I, still, I still think it exists, which is a Canadian University Service Overseas, CUSO. And when I was a student, I looked into it. I thought this would be interesting. And I, I even thought I'm going to apply. And then when I saw the application process, I said, oh, God, I'm not going to get in too complicated too complex uh, you know etc etc so I, I never bothered so I did have an interest in doing something like this 
Um, but I didn't take it seriously. And I came home and there was a message from him. He's already trying to set up a meeting with this other person. And, and I, I, I just scorned it. I said, this is not for me. What am I doing? But this went on. You know, he, he was the type of a person who was relentless in many ways. Um, I went away, came back. There was messages from him. Come and let's chat, etc., etc. Anyway, eventually I got together with this young doctor who was trying to set up this organization. And uh, and he was totally, uh, how should I put it, uh, not very practical. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and I wasn't impressed, and I thought this wasn't going to go anywhere. What am I doing, etc. And and that again, my friend said to me, he called me back, and he said, well, that's why you need you. He needs you to make it happen. Without you, it's not going to happen. This and that, etc., etc. Uh, then I went on something you have in UK too, outward bound. <laughs> and and it was one of these courses you know for uh, a month that they have up up north here in northern ontario so i went on it and as you know that one of the things they do there or at least did then was a solo where you go by for for three or four nights by yourself you know they give you a little you know that story they give you a little bit of a tea bags and a little thing and a plastic bag and said we'll see you in three days or four in my case it was four days because they couldn't get back to me because it was a, it was a terrible storm um so while sitting there and 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 uh, eating blueberries because I had nothing else to eat. <laughs> I decided, you know what? Let's give it a shot. Let's help this guy. Let's go to Sudan. Let's see. Let's see how this thing goes. And that's how it started. I went in and we met and I put my, aside my personal feeling about uh, the young doctor who I, as I said, who is now a lifelong friend, but not, a, not an easy person as far as trying to get things done. Uh, and, um, and, you know, I ran the first project in Sudan and then I, uh, and from there, this was just before the Ethiopian famine hit. Um, and then I came back after six months, um, and, uh, the news about the Ethiopian famine exploded. Uh, and because I was at that time on the border of Sudan and Ethiopia, um, so I said a kind of a personal experience about who these people were and what was going on. And then, you know, there were these spontaneous teams that were trying to go in and Canada decided, Kingston Hospital decided they're going to send a team of 28 people. They heard about me, so they invited me to give them a speech to preparation, you know, how to prepare for the, the conditions. So when I was there, I was listening to their team leader, who was an army guy. Uh, and what he was expecting and how he was going to treat the people, sort of telling them, like, you're going to have to wear gloves 24 hours a day, etc., etc. And I listened to this, I just took, you know, I just said to myself, oh, my God, <laughs> this is disaster in the making. <laughs> he has no idea how you're going to keep gloves on it, 45 degrees Celsius, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, boots on, you know, he wants everybody wearing boots, you know, and, 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 you know, stuff like this. And I said, oh, my God, these people have no idea what they're getting themselves into. So I went back and, and uh, I had a chat with my, with my partner, then, um, Dr. Deutsch, and, and the other person, my friend. And, and we said, you know what? Uh, they kind of pointed at me and I said, Henry, you should go back. We're going to get 
another team going and we're going to send you to Ethiopia. And I wasn't that keen because I wasn't feeling great. You know, you go work six months in a refugee camp, you pick up all kinds of intestinal challenges. So I wasn't feeling great, but I, at the end I convinced myself um, simply because, you know, the tragedy was, you know, you, you just can't look at those pictures. And when you feel that you have the skills now, that you have the ability to help. So I went. And and from that, uh, you know, I became afterwards um, an executive director of the organization. I ran this for nine years. Uh, we worked in Sudan, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Uganda, Malawi, Mozambique, Angola. Um, <clears throat> we started setting up projects in in variety of countries, and we were quite successful. Uh, I think one of the reasons we were successful is because I did I was not educated in any of this because I didn't have any any background in it. I would look at the, all the issues very practical engineering perspective without too much philosophy. I also had the advantage of um, growing up in rural area Slovakia, which wasn't that different from Africa, you know, as I said, I started my life with taking a cow to pasture, you know, so when I saw these Ethiopian kids doing the same thing, um, you know, I, I understood them. I, I knew exactly what needed to be when, you know, we, when I was five or six, my mom's favorite story was my, we just built a house. And they were digging a deep well, so we have on our property, so we can have water. And the workers dug a deep well, and and then they at the end of the day they left it uncovered. And I was a sport, sport, you know, active kid. I was jumping over this deep well. You know, it was a nice challenge. And my mother saw me from the kitchen of the, you know, and and she like freaked out, but you know, give her free, give, give her credit. You know, my mother didn't do anything. She, she quietly snuck behind me, uh, you know, so she doesn't startle me. I don't know something, you know, in the middle and just grab me. So again, I had, uh, you know, the, the things I grew up with, you know, you know, getting things done in a village and Slovakia was modernizing when I was growing up. And, and so, and plus being kind of an outsider, um, again, being being Jewish in a rural area of Slovakia, I was an outsider. So I understood that when I came to Ethiopia, in order to make anything done, or in Ethiopia, all this country, I realized that, you know, you have to befriend the community. You have to really talk to the elders. You have to talk to the administrators. You have to make everybody feel comfortable while you're here and what you're going to do and ask for their advice because without them, nothing is going to work. And, and so we ended up being very successful because of this very subtle approach, you know, how you, first you go there, you have a drink with the community elders, you have a drink with a secret service, you know, <laughs> you talk about your, your, your problems and, 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 you know, you talk about your social life, you talk about everything before you do anything. Um, and at that point, they say, hey, we can work with these guys. Not only that, you know, they all have requests. You know, someone wants a book from the West. Other has a son who wants him, he wants him to go study. You know, can you get me an application from for him from university? Can you do this? It, you know, people ask a little favor and, and you do that for them. And then, next, you know, then you come in and you say, you know, I need a special permit for this and this. He says, hey, don't worry, come tomorrow and get a permit. You know, we other organization will be fighting tooth and nail to get stuff done. Um, and, and so um, a very subtle way, we were very successful. The organization was growing by leaps and bounds by, you know, by, by the time I was there nine years, decided to leave, it was a $9 million budget. 
and I was exhausted because by that time it just became, you know, raising money and firing and hiring people. You know, when you get to that sort of stage, it starts to become bureaucratic. But most of the pain was really the donors, you know, because once they start giving you money, they, then, then they start telling you what to do and how to do, and they want reports. And, you know, the, the essential fun of dealing with the community and, and having an old man coming and kissing you because, you know, you promised to do something and he never believed you, and then you come back two years later and they're just hugging and kissing you. He said, you know... Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, the kind of a joy that comes from seeing things getting done um, uh, disappears because they said you just become an administrator and a fundraiser. And uh, yeah, and the board start telling you what to do and how to do. And everybody start telling you what to do. <laughs> um, and not, that's not to say they don't have, you know, they don't necessarily have good input, but it just, you know, the, the joy disappeared. And uh, and I decided to call it quit. So I left after nine years. Um, so that was uh, then. And then I I I I, um, I went to Israel for a year, where I spent uh, time working with the Israelis and Palestinians on peace issues and and environmental issues. I was trying to figure out, uh, you know, how to get something done there. <laughs> and, and then one year stretched to another nine years where I was doing stuff like this. I was involved with all the local um, and, and surrounding area. Um, again, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience and adventure and a, and a learning process because, uh, you know, it's such a mess there, such a, such a painful area. Um, and, uh, and then I said, you know, this is destroying me. I can't take it anymore. So I, I came back to Canada and that's when I set up this organization. Um, uh, again, it, um, it kept, it, it happened sort of, uh, coincidentally, um, the actual story goes like when I was working in Ethiopia, um, I would often see these women carrying these heavy, heavy loads on their back. Particularly, they would go in Addis Ababa. They would walk outside of Addis to collect wood, and then they would come and sell at the market. And, you know, uh, they would walk 10, 15, 20 kilometers just to bring that wood. And I, I kept saying to myself, I said, you know, bicycles, bicycles, bicycles. They need bicycles. Um, and then I started talking to other people in development. I said, bicycles, you know, look India, look at India, how they did. Look at China, you know, that's the step. You know, you need to increase the ability for people to increase their market, you know, when they grow something. So that, you know, you take a bicycle, you can multiply <clears throat> their impact three or four times. Um, and so I started looking into this and, and uh, Indian bicycle and Chinese bicycle who would, you know, who you would, you buy $25, $30 in India or China, by the time you get it to Ethiopian market or Nairobi market or any of the markets, it would be $150 to $150. You know, it's a lot of money for a person who, who makes a dollar a day at best. Um, so I said, you know, somebody's got to set up a, a factory here to make, to, to put pressure on the market, to lower the prices. And, um, and, so I keep saying that, and, and then uh, one day somebody, a Canadian, uh, of, well, an English Canadian from England, actually, not English Canadian, but but someone who emigrated to Canada, who I actually met in Sudan, uh, who was working for Save the Children, 
came to me and said, Henry, I want to work with you. I like the way you guys are doing things. I want to work with you. And I said, I don't have a job, but you have an MBA. Uh, am I right? And he said, yeah, I do have an MBA. I said, I have this crazy idea, and I think I can get some funding. I want to set up a factory in Nairobi, bicycle factory in Nairobi. And um, and he um, he liked it. You know, I said, I want to say, I, I want to do a feasibility study, and I think I can get enough money to, to, to send you to Nairobi to do a feasibility study. And, and he liked it, and, and we put a proposal together, and he got, we got the money, and he went to Nairobi and, and came up with the feasibility study, which looked promising. He even found a, 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 a Kenyan uh, uh, who wanted to put money into it. Um, um, actually, you know, one of those, uh, I believe it was a, a third generation Ishmaeli uh, who who uh, who lived in in Nairobi owned like three or four shops and you know he had money to spare and 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 he actually was selling bicycles so he liked the concept so it looked like we were gonna go for it and then we sat down and started talking about well okay uh, if you're gonna go for it uh, let's put up a business plan how are we gonna market this where are we gonna get the funding and and uh, it was obvious that the marketing was going to be the biggest challenge. Um, and and uh, he said to me, my partner, David, said, so how are we going to market this? And I said, oh, well, that's the easy part. Uh, he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know this guy Branson in the in, in UK? All he does is pull his stunts. Every time he comes up with something, he pulls his stunts so people write about him and, and you know, he gets free publicity. So he says to me, so? So? So I said, we're going to pull a stun. And he said, what's going to be the stun? I said, we're going to make these bicycles. We're going to be these heavy industrial bicycles. And we're going to do a race from Cairo to Cape Town, these bicycles. <laughs> and he started laughing. And I said, well, no, I'm not kidding. You know, we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do it. That's how the Tour de Afrique concept started. Of course, the bicycle, the, the factory fell apart because my uh, David got an offer from uh, uh, Deloitte, you know, Deloitte, the big company in Nairobi. And he also realized that uh, being an entrepreneur, you don't get paid. <laughs> Where the, the Lord will give him sixty, seventy thousand dollars, <laughs> which in in Nairobi is a lot of money. You know, you can have a gardener, you can have a cook, you can have a driver. You know how it is in there. Or, um, so um, he got seduced uh, and and left me holding. And at that time, I was actually doing, still running my organization. I was actually doing some documentary films in the process as well. I was just so I put it aside, and that that and I said, okay, well, that's not going to happen. But then, about a year later, a board member of my organization, not even a year later, came to me and he says, "Henry, I, I, you know, this bicycle project you have in Nairobi. There's someone here in Toronto. Uh, I think I have to put you together. He's a he he he's a Dutch Canadian. He's an avid cyclist, and he's got he's in a cycling business, and." Um, I'm going to put you together. So he did. And we sat down together. And this fellow basically said to me, Henry, you don't want to go into business against Chinese and Indian. They're just going to destroy you. They're going to starve you. you know? Yeah, you're going to lower the prices for a year. And, and they're going to keep lowering until you, you, run, you run dry and, and etc. But he said, but I love the concept of Cairo to Cape Town. Said, Let's do that. Um, 
And I sort of, you know, you meet a lot of people who are talkers, and I sort of let it go. But, you know, a month later, he came up with a mock brochure all ready to go, etc. And I said, oh, well, we got something here. <laughs> um, and then that was in 1993, before I went to the Middle East. Um, and then about, you know, while we were actually just looking at this mock brochure, there was this terrible um, uh, um, terrorist attack in Cairo, in, not in Cairo, in Aswan, in, um, yeah, in Egypt, uh, not in Aswan, and um, what's the big city there? Uh, I forget the name now. Um, where, and there was about 40 to 50 German tourists killed. It was horrible, horrible. It was one of the biggest one in, in those days anyway, you know, it was a, and the media was full with it. And we just looked at each other and I said, well, this is not going to, you know, next year is another way to do this because it's, it's just nobody's going to do it. So we put it aside and then I went to the Middle East, I said, and I, and, and that year became nine years. Um, and then I had, uh, uh, then I decided I wanted to leave Israel, uh, and, uh, and decided to come back and, uh, I started looking what I was going to do. Um, and I actually had another project that I was competing to get with World Bank. And uh, that's an interesting process as well. But I'm going to stop it here because it just gets too complicated. But anyway, that didn't work because of 9-11. So because of 9-11, that project didn't work. Um, I figured, what else? And I just sort of said to myself, you know, I'm 50 right now. I had this, if I'm going to do some crazy adventure, which I always wanted to do in my life, this is the time. It's now or never. Uh, and uh, I called up uh, this fellow who was then who was still interested in doing this tour de Africa to Cape Town, and I said, "Michael, it's now or never. Are we are we going to do this? Yes or no? Because because if you want to do it, I'm ready." Uh, and he came back 24 hours later and he said, "Let's do it." That's how it started. That's crazy i had no and i you know obviously i did my research before but i had no idea that you um you waited the nine years but um before we talk about the tour d'afrique which is obviously you know what i'd like to go on to talk about what was life like in israel and palestine and, and what were you doing there so you know i came there initially um I spoke the language. After we leaving, left Czechoslovakia, I was 13, and um, we, we moved to Israel um, because we were actually given permission to leave communist Czechoslovakia. Um, we were given permission to go to Israel. Um, and my mom had some uh, second cousins there, and, and so we went there. And I was put into a boarding school um, where I learned the language. And uh, again, it was a tremendous adventure for me. I was 13 years old. The boarding school was was wonderful, um, even though for the first two weeks I cried. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't cry, but I was very unhappy. Um, um, it was wonderful because, um, again, the boarding school was a mixture of, of uh, people from around the world. There were Cochini Jews from India. There were Persian Jews. There were Moroccan Jews. There were kids from single family. There were kids from criminal families. There were kids from Europe, like myself, uh, from Romania, Hungary, um, Tunisians, uh, you name it. Um, essentially, it was it was a cross-section of Jewry. Yemeni, a lot of Yemeni kids. It was a cross-section of Jewry, um, 
essentially disadvantaged jury, you know, people who, who, who either immigrants or broken family or, or, or you know. And um, again, it was, you know, it was educational, uh, not by, not in an academic sense. <laughs> Academically, that wasn't the point there. <laughs> because we were actually working half a day and, and going to school half a day. And we were, uh, you know, again, we had, and then, again, that helped me tremendously in Africa because it was an agricultural school that was transforming from agriculture um, as it used to be to a modern agriculture. So, you know, for example, we started growing tomatoes for export to Switzerland. Um, we had 350 cows, we had 5,000 chickens, um, you know, and this was all run by kids. You know, we had a supervisor for, yeah, but, but they were supervising the 60 kids per person, you know, it was a, so, um, and, um, and in that sense, again, it was a tremendous education by osmosis. Um, um, I mean, I have never I knew there was a Cochini Jew, <laughs> you know, and it was such a shock. Uh, I remember falling in love with this tall, stunning girl from, from Cochin called Judith, <laughs> Judith, I'll never forget her. I, in fact, I was thinking about it. I was, I was wondering what happened to her. And, uh, you know, you're 13, 14 years old, you know, you're still looking at girls. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it was a wonderful, in that sense, experience. And, and when I said I was, I was burned out, so I wanted to go somewhere where I would, um, I didn't want to be in Canada after working in those places. I just thought, uh, you know, I was covering a culture shock of a sort. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go to Israel and reconnect with some of the people I knew. And so when I got there, I, I, um, immediately was drawn how do you meet people by volunteering by helping by and then applying the skills and once people start saying that you you know they start listening to what you you know what you say because you have the experience of doing it so they start uh, drawing on you and they start asking and then again you know you, you get drawn into the <laughs> doing things you didn't think you would <laughs> you know we we uh there was a, a friend who was uh, set up this committee against demolition of uh, Palestinian houses. And next thing I knew, I was helping him and getting arrested. <laughs> and, you know, civil disobedience stuff and, 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 and stuff like that. And then there was the environmental group. You're fighting environmental issues in, you know, at that time, both in Israel and, and Palestine and Jordan. You know, this was fairly... You're fighting an uphill battle. You know, this country says, what are you bringing in first world worries? You know, we don't have time for this. And then you're saying, but you do, you you know, you don't know what you're destroying. You know, you don't have the resources here. you got to protect these resources. you got to protect the water. You know, you can't pollute rivers. You know, you can't do stuff like this. It's, 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 it's you know, so, you know, you were, it was terribly frustrating um, <clears throat> and difficult to get any changes going. But, you know, I put my heart into it and we manage, you know, you succeed, but you fail, you know, because um, even though you succeed here and there and it gives you satisfaction, you know, it's sort of like when I look at Ethiopia right now, you know, what we did, we succeeded in project, but did we succeed in overall? I, I, we didn't because, you know, the, when I was there, the Ethiopian population was 35 millions or so. Now it's 100 millions, you know, so. 
yeah, maybe there are people who have been helped, and many of them, but overall, you know, the average Ethiopian is not much better off. It's not better off at all. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, but you do the best you can. That's life. Yeah, you do your part, right? You do your part, exactly. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, so I, I didn't ask before whether or not you're comfortable with me asking this. And if you're not, you know, just say, but I wondered if we could talk a little bit about faith and religion and, yeah, you know, obviously yeah. sure. that, you know, you were raised... Um, obviously, as we've discussed with your mother being in Auschwitz, you were raised Jewish. Yeah. Do you, do you still, is that a strong part of your identity now? And, and how do you feel about faith and religion? So, um, I'm, I, I'm not a practicing in a religious sense. I'm not practicing Jew. Uh, I'm very much, uh, um, Jewish culture and, um, sensitivity, if you will. Um, I do once a year um, go to the synagogue um, on, on fast, Yom Kippur, and not to pray as much, but simply to reassert my identity, to be there with other people. Um, I'm not a believer in that sense. Um, um, so um, um, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't spend much time thinking about it. Uh, I'm, you could say I'm agnostic at best. Um, I'm very, very comfortable um, with religious people of all kinds. Uh, um, I was comfortable in, in Sudan and Ethiopia and everywhere else. Um, I have respect um, for religion because I've seen both sides of it, the good and the bad. I've seen missionaries doing a wonderful job, and I've seen missionaries trying to convert people, and I didn't like that. Um, I've seen missionaries trying to convert me. (laughs) Um, Both Jewish and other missionaries. (laughs) Um, I go to temples when I'm in India or anywhere else. Um, um, So... um, you know, I, I look. My father was not in camp. My father was um, uh, was in hiding for the last part of the war in, by a man and his family um, in Slovakia, in rural Slovakia. These people um, essentially were my grandparents. Um, we would go. In, in fact, to, to this day, um, the the grandson. The, sorry, the granddaughter, uh, the great-granddaughter, the man who saved my father during the war, uh, works for me in, in Europe on the tours. Um, we have a wonderful relationship with the family. Um, 
and we kept in touch. And in fact, as I said, uh, in a way, the old man was a grandfather. Um, and uh, every two or three years, I would go, my family would go visit them. Um, the reason I bring it up, because he was a man, a religious man. Um, he believed, he, he was, um, his family belonged to a, like sort of seven seven day Adventists, you know, who believe in Sabbath. And then when I was a kid, um, I remember I remember going with my mom, and we would go to church with them. Um, and again, it was there was no conflict, you know. And they knew we were Jewish, and we knew who they were, and there was simply a, a sense. And you know, as a, I left Czechoslovakia as a thirteen years old. At the age of twenty six, um, I decided to go back. Um, the first time back to Czechoslovakia. Um, and the main purpose was to to meet the family. In fact, this is when I was trying to, you know, you're a young man, you're trying to understand the world. And I was trying to understand what makes an individual hide uh, several Jews when he has three little kids and a wife, and if he gets discovered, he's going to put against the wall and going to be shot. You know, the courage of a warrior, when you do something very instinctively and spontaneously, and, you know, and I have my own stories where I acted under stress and pressure, and I'm so happy how I did. But how do you do a heroic act day after day after day when you have three little kids, and you know, if somebody discovers you, you're going to be shot, and they're all going to be shot. I wanted to understand this. So I went at the age of 26 to meet this man, and... Uh, you know, it's a very emotional story. Even now I'm tearing up. Um, but at the end, he said he said to me very simply, and I asked him, why did you do it? Why did you do it? And he just he sort of looked at me, looked at me, looked at me, didn't say much for half a minute. And then he said, because it was the right thing to do. Um, and that was the end of the conversation. He didn't want to elaborate. He didn't want to discuss. He just said, you know, and and to me, um, it, it was a it was a light for my rest of my life. Um, you sometimes do things where you endanger yourself simply by you know it's the thing to do. Um, and he was a man of faith, and and uh, I think he did it because of of his belief. And as a result, I have a lot of respect for spiritual leaders and 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 religion because I think that they can be very powerful. At the same time, they can be very destructive. You know, it's a two side of the same coin, and and um, and one has to, you know, religiously <laughs> like everybody else can be very corrupt, <laughs> very nationalistic, very selfish, very destructive, and so on. They're just human beings like the rest of us, and I think that's what I, you know, that's what I. I have a friend who who likes a Jewish friend who likes to point out how corrupt. Uh, Orthodox Jews. He finds it very, very offensive, you know. And whenever he finds an Orthodox Jew doing something, he just is so offended. He doesn't. He's not offended that a non-religious Jew does it, but he gets very offended. <laughs> and I keep saying, "What do you think the difference are? He's just a human being, like you and me. He's just as weak or strong as you and me are." Um, religion, you know, it's what you make of it, and uh, and it can be a beautiful thing, and it can be very destructive. Yeah. That- yeah, it's a great, a great answer. I mean, this is, you know, the adventure podcast, not the religion or faith <laughs> podcast, but I'd love, I'd love to elaborate, but I won't. But it's, I just think it's an interesting 
conversation to have because so much of like the most interesting travel and adventure that's culture led on the planet it is into religious areas you talk about india you talk about being in ethiopia you know you look at africa christianity islam you know it's dominated by religion so anyway we will leave that point there but maybe it's a nice segue into the culture and the experience and the adventure of traveling from cairo to cape town well, you know, when you when you travel on a bicycle across uh, any continent, you know, we travel through India, we travel through Silk Route, we travel through Africa. Now the the company started with one idea, but then it expanded. Um, even here, rural, the, the further away you go from the city, uh, the more you insert yourself into a life, and and because. You know, a car, a bus, or anything else is a barrier. On a bicycle, there's nothing. You're vulnerable to cars. You're vulnerable to dogs. You're vulnerable to people, kids throwing stones at you in Ethiopia. Um, you, you're vulnerable. And as a result, because you're vulnerable, you are approachable. Um, and people react to you. And, and you can react to people. And the same thing, you know, you're stuck. You just had a flat tire. You just hit the stone, and you're on the ground. Um and in the way we cycle, where we don't necessarily go in a group, but you go by yourself, you know, you all of a sudden, you know, you just spill all your water and you have no more water. You got to talk to these local people. You got to interact. You know, next thing you know, you're sitting at a wedding and you are the honor guest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you. Uh, I remember in Tajikistan, I wasn't feeling well, so I was in a car um, in our vehicle that goes ahead and, and sets up camp and you go. Uh, and and because I wasn't feeling well, they didn't want me to help with the cooking. So I heard some music in the distance. So I said to myself, you know, I'm just going to go and check out. You know, I'm in a kind of a village here. Let's see what uh, where the music coming in. So I, uh, I get closer, closer to the music, trying to see what it is. And next thing I know, I'm being grabbed by two guys and I'm sitting right beside the, the groom. <laughs> By the way, this is an Ishmaeli as well, um, village in Tajikistan, uh, on the border of Afghanistan. And, you know, and the next thing I know, I'm, I'm wine and dine and, and I'm asked to dance. And, you know, how they stick money in for dancing and all of this thing. And, and, and you know, and, you know, I walk away. And, by the way, you're not allowed to drink. You know, it's, it's a Ismaili culture. But, but uh you know, every half an hour, an hour, you can see the groom and a bunch of other people sneaking out. And next thing you know, you are being offered a drink. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're like a long lost family member. <laughs> Often there is someone who speaks English, who's been educated because it's a wedding. They come from the city, etc. And you're talking and, you know, they want to know about your life and, and you ask questions and you look at the tradition, etc. That doesn't happen in a car. That doesn't happen in anything else. So cultural exposure is, is on a bicycle. Uh, I mean, there's nothing like it. If you want to see, if you want to feel and see and, and smell a country, um, you could do it walking, but that will take forever. So bicycle is a, <laughs> is a way to go and see the world. I'm a big fan of it. And as I said, I have stories, endless stories, like the one I just told you. Um of of uh, you know of uh, in in Uzbekistan, 
you see people selling watermelons by the side and they keep offering as you cycle and you finally said you know i love watermelon i'm gonna have a slice next thing you know you're sitting with them and getting drunk because they won't let you go (laughs) (laughs) you know you're having watermelon with vodka (laughs) well guess what you know that doesn't happen (laughs) anyway so i i'm a big big supporter of diamond yeah and i you know i it sounds like there are enough stories for two or three podcast episodes but um i think what i think is amazing is you were 50 when you decided to set out finally and do this long journey maybe you could just tell me the story of that first big cycle ride well Cairo to cape town um you know, because it was never done before, because there was a lot of skepticism, cynicism, and we had no idea we could pull it off. Um, I knew because, you know, there are parts of the countries where you couldn't even, and even to these days, you can only go in convoys, you need special permits. For example, Egypt still, you know, <clears throat> going through um, northern Sudan was a problem. Northern Ke- uh, Kenya was a big problem. Um Ethiopia was a problem, so there was no guarantee we were able to do this, and uh, and people who have tried realize that that's just, you know people who have tried going through bicycle, for example, they would be put on a convoy with everybody else and saying here, you want to go through Nairobi, get on the car, otherwise get in a truck. Um, because of my work and my friendship with people, I was able to get permits Sudan, Ethiopia, Egypt, and Kenya. Um, essentially without trying, meaning I, I sent an email to individuals in each country that I knew because of my work. And uh, I said, you know, you think we can arrange a permit to, for me to get through and uh, be, be, be the cyclist? And either the people who were in charge didn't understand what we were doing or because, as I assume, yeah, the problems are not that serious, you know. Often the bureaucracies figure this is the way it is. Well, let's just keep it that way because if I open it up and something happens, I'm to blame. So because I worked in these places, I knew things were doable. And if you had the right approach, and if you, as I said, if you sit down and and, and talk to the big cheese and smile and <laughs> and talk about girlfriends, <laughs> you know, you become human, and, and they they're not worried that you're coming there to sabotage them or your problems. So we got very very lucky, um, and we got the permissions to cycle and cycle. <clears throat> so to give you an example, starting in Egypt. We had a very, in fact, I didn't think we were going to get the trucks in. We brought the trucks from South Africa, and, and the Egyptian customs would not allow us to bring the truck in. Um, and three days to go, we had no truck. But eventually, you know, begging and screaming and crying, etc., we managed to get one truck in. But then as we were driving through, um, we were going through, once we left the Red Sea, um, we were going on the roads, beautiful road, <clears throat> there was no traffic because you could only, they only had two convoys going each way. Um, in the morning, one convoy, <clears throat> in, the after, in the afternoon convoy, and there would, in the convoy, there would be 30, 40, 50 vehicles, mainly buses. Um, and, it's, and then we were given a permission to cycle, and no convoy, no nothing. There was one ambulance behind us. Uh, one police car I had somewhere and we were spread like 25, 35, even more kilometers between. So, you know, you would be cycling. And then all of a sudden I remember one day, you know, we were on this road 
and all of a sudden you hear vehicles, so you 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 pull aside and you see forty buses going by, and and they're all looking at you. What are you? You know, what are you? Who who are you? Why are you even a bicycle? I'm going in a convoy, and, and you know there was as I said thirty thirty three of us on a bicycle. Actually, more because there's some people doing only sections, um, and and. Uh, you know, and, and you're kind of smiling and say, well, guess what? You know, I'm allowed to do this, but you're not because because I paid my dues. I don't know. <laughs> so it was like that. It was like this through Kenya. It was like through Sudan. We were just, um, I, and but you never know. You know, you get to a border, you have no idea what's going to happen. You know, you have the story today of Djokovic, but you just don't know when you get to the, <laughs> to the border, who is going to do what. And again, I can tell you stories where we got stuck at the border in the subsequent years. Uh, individuals got, got stuck and, and we had to do all sorts of things to, to get, get them through. Um, but every day, me and my partner, at the end of the day, we pick up a glass of wine, if we had one, and celebrated. Guess what? We did it another day. We made it another day. And and as I said, we simply had no idea what was going to happen. We didn't know where we were going to sleep. We were camping. And the instruction was, because I was on a bicycle, the instruction to the driver was, you know, you, today you're going to drive about 90 kilometers, and then you start looking for a place where we can put, you know, 40 tents. Uh, hopefully there's water nearby. Hopefully there's a place where people can go to the corner and do their things. Um, and and I would give the instruction to the cyclists in the evening. I said tomorrow, uh, 95 kilometers plus or minus 15 <laughs> percent. Um, so you, I had no idea. You know, I, I had no idea where where we're gonna sleep. Some areas I knew because I've been there before. Much of the roads I didn't know. You know, I knew this, you know, some of the countries I knew really well. Some of them I had no idea. I'd never been on those roads. For example, Tanzania, everybody would, you know, if you go to Tanzania, you would go on a paved road to Dar es Salaam and then from Dar es Salaam towards Malawi or or, or Zambia. Well, um, I I decided that's not the way to do it. First of all, because it's... it's uh, extra several days of cycling and secondly i it's more dangerous um so this we decided we're going to go on on dirt road which is, and nobody ever went on this dirt road you know it's a dirt road and, and i have never been on the dirt road and and the only information i had is i paid some tanzanian guy I said get on a bus and go this route and then tell me what you find and the assumption was that if he can get through on this route with a bus like, you know, there's local buses, you know what I'm talking about, you know, like there's vans and stuff like this. If he can get through on this thing, we are going to get through. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened, you know. He sent me an email and said, I'm, I'm here, i done it, everything cool, you can do it. <laughs> and and I had all kinds of opposition, people who were, you know, on that particular route, there was some criminal act 10 years before. But, you know, everything that happened in Africa 10 years is this has happened yesterday. You know, people keep bringing it up. And people on my, you know, some of the participants knew about these things. They did their homework. They said, this is dangerous. This is crazy. What are you doing to us? You're going to get us all killed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, just stay calm. Just, you know. And that's how it went. So we had no idea what was going on, literally. So the biggest pleasure to me was, by the way, because we said 120 days we were going to be in Cairo, in Cape Town. And then um, on the last day coming into Cape Town, um, 
we were offered, uh, we, uh, sorry, we, we worked to get a police escort. <laughs> but then, you know, things happen in life where there's jurisdiction. So you have a police officer with you, jurisdiction. And then we, so we started the day with a police officer, and then we were supposed to hand that over to the next police officer. Uh, except there was no one there. <laughs> and I'm scrambling now. What do I do? You know, I have 33 people. I have media waiting for us. <laughs> and I'm looking at a map how to get to Cape Town. <laughs> like, right, because, you, you know, you, I didn't do my homework at that point because I figured the police, you know, they're, you know, they're going to do They're going to tell us what's the best way, what's the safest, etc. Anyway, we figured it out. We got in, and then we got to uh, outside of, of Cape Town, but you know we already see the Table Mountain. And now I'm looking at watch, and, and I told everybody we're going to be in the media. We're going to be there at two o'clock in the afternoon. Now look at the watch, and I'm saying, "But boy, it's twelve o'clock. We're too early. Is I going to be there? What am I going to do?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so I stop everybody, and I said, "Guys, we have a little problem. Everybody, take a rest." You know, we're going to sit here and we have a little issues here. We're going to deal with it and take a rest. In the meantime, I was just kind of laughing under my nose saying, look, everybody said we're not going to make it. And here we are early. Now I have to worry that we are early. I have to stop. I have to make up the story. <laughs> because, you know, not only the media, but the families are waiting. You know, people came in, people flew, flew in, you know, partners and, and kids. People were celebrating because it was, you know, people were scared. There were people who came on this trip who thought they were going to die. They literally thought they were coming to die. Um, because, you know, people are worried about wildlife, people worry about terrorism, people worry about being bitten by snakes, you know, all this stuff that people worry about when they go to unknown continent. So, you know, it was a big thing. And um, as I said, people, family came and and, uh, and people were engaged and, and so on. So so it was, it, it was wonderful in that sense. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I find most crazy about it I was thinking this when I was reading earlier is that because adventurers do crazy stuff all the time, right? Like whether it's their first one or their 20th, what blows my mind is that over 30 people thought they'd go with you, even though you'd never done it before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, and I was very open um, from the beginning. I remember one of the participants who came with his uh, um, common law, well, they they just, moved in together, common law wife, I guess. It was kind of their honey honeymoon. He used to be a reporter. And when he called me, he heard me talking on the radio. And when he, 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 I said on the radio here, CBC radio, I was being interviewed. I said, yeah, I never done this before. I'm not a cyclist. I'm not even an athlete of any kind, but you know, I'm 50. I'm going to do this. I can do this. I'm going to do this. This is for the average guy who, who doesn't need to be athletic, but needs you know, needs to be determined and, and wants to do it. So this guy picked up the phone and he calls me and he starts asking me questions, you know, uh, <clears throat> like, uh, what's your background? You know, uh, and I, I, I said, I don't, in doing this, I said, I have no background in doing this. Um, and he said, well, have you done anything like tourism or lead group? I said, I've never done anything like it. You know, he asked me like four or five questions, like a journalist, you know, like pointy, like aggressive question. And and I just you know I was being like being kind of a smart aleck. I said I I don't know. He said, "Do you think you can do this?" I said, "I have no idea." Um, and then there was this silence. He had kind of run out of this question. 
And and then I said, but if you want to know why I think we can do it, I'll tell you. <laughs> and then I explained to him, you know, that, you know, what we did in Ethiopia, I worked in Ethiopia, we did, you know, that we, we fed 250,000 hungry people and, and I worked in Sudan and I worked in these other places and, and then I, I knew Africa well and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I said, so a lot of unknown. I think we can pull it off, but I have no idea. And, you know, if you're going to come, you have to make a decision. The responsibility is on you. It's not on me. You know, I, I kept telling people from the beginning, you know, that I'm, I'm assuming everybody's coming on this trip, you know, has a, has a brain and going to use it. You know, I'm not guaranteeing anything. You know, um, I, I think this can be done, but you're joining a team and it's a, it's a, it's a joint effort. And, and I expect you to behave in certain ways. And, and, and so it was kind of a quiet leadership, you know, um, by example, more than anything else. And, and, um, and they saw I was, I'm not sure I'm the, the least athletic, but I certainly was one of the least athletic on the trip. And, and I was always slow. I was one of the last people to come in. Um, and, um, and I think people respected respected the whole you know the approach and and it worked out yeah brilliant well um i'm conscious of time but i mean i know that you've then you then went on to cycle across another five continents so you know it it sounds like we'll have to do another podcast (laughs) and you can tell those stories (laughs) well each one is a wonderful story you know and each one is a bit of a dare how they happen um you know, somebody comes up with an idea and can we do this? And and then we study the situation, we analyze, we look at the difficulties, we look at the challenges, what 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 is necessary to be in place in order, you know, what are the most difficult, you know, the rest of the stuff, once you deal with the most challenging aspect, the rest of the thing kind of falls into place. Um, but you also have to be very aware that things are not going to work out and how you're going to deal with it. Um, you know, how are you going to find solution when, when, when things are not working out? You know, what do you do? How do you behave? Um, how do you keep everybody calm? Um, and because we are, you know, we are going to places that explode. You know, we were in, uh, in Tajikistan when groups started fighting each other. You know, you, we, we were in Colombia. We were the first group after the war. We went through Colombia. Um, <clears throat> through the whole Colombia, you know, because people can go through sections, but we were literally went up from 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 the north to the south when we were doing the first South American epic, and uh, yeah, and they, I mean, I remember again, I was in the back, last person cycling, when a tour leader <clears throat> calls up and says, "Henry, guess what? The bridge was blown up." <laughs> <laughs> we can't get through. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> you know, because in the meantime, between me and him, there are 45 people, you know, in a distance of 35, 40 kilometers. Um, and, and, and some of them panic. You know, they hear the story and they just panic. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like we definitely need to do that second podcast one day. <laughs> um Cool. Well, um, I'll, you know, draw it to a close and I always ask people the same two questions, um, at the end of every, every conversation, but, um, what scares you? Well, I think the scary part to me always is that, uh, you know, I always say I'm, I've been very, very fortunate that I have angels who are looking 
and and uh, you know I had this story we haven't touched on how I was stepped you know literally um, in India I, I'm lucky to be alive when I was chased by chased by a wild elephant. Uh, we haven't even touched one of the, you know, uh, <laughs> one of the most amazing uh, facts that I'm still alive. Um, and I was on a bicycle too, so I wasn't, you know, it was it was a crazy story. Um, I, I, I mean, what scares me is always, you know, people joke around. You know, you have nine lives, and I always say, well, I don't know, am I on my seventh, eight, or nine? You know, has my luck run out? Um, I'm very aware that. You know, any any minute, but that's life too. You know, any minute we cannot get a stroke or something else. You know, on a bicycle you're so vulnerable. Any minute you can be hit by a car or something. So I'm I'm very scared of the fact that luck is going to run out. You know, um, that that's the the thing because I'm aware that you know you can do everything in the world and still, you know, things will go wrong, um, and and uh, and they're beyond your control. And so yeah. It, it scares me, but but you have to be accepting, and I accept it, you know. I, 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 so yeah, I would say that scares me the most. <laughs> but you know, there was a little film that somebody did. Uh, um, interesting enough, it's it's on our YouTube. Uh, interviewed me, and and uh, <clears throat> he asked me, uh, and he started the film by by it's it's not not having fear; it's how you deal with fear. Um, I mean, that's what I said, and, and that's how we started the video. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of things scare me. I'm, I'm like every other human being. I think the thing is, you know, how you talk yourself into dealing with fear, um, how you calm yourself and say, you know, I got to do something here. I can't panic. Um, I just got to stay calm and look for a way of, out of this. And sometimes I, I joke around and I used to say to myself, you know, I got myself into this, I'm going to get myself out of this. Um, so it's not it's not what scares me, it's, it's, it's how to deal with it. That's the main thing. Yeah, brilliant. And then finally, what brings you hope? Oh, I, I think that's inborn, you know, you just have to, I, I, I'm very cynical and, and pessimistic, but at the same time, I wake up every morning and do things that needs to be done, you know, and that's the internal hope, you, you know, you hope that you're wrong about pessimism, cynicism, I, you know, uh, <clears throat> I, I'm full of it, I've seen it, you know, I come from that background and I've seen horrendous things, but the hope is eternal, you know, you just, it's somehow in, inborn uh, to, for most of us. Um, and, and you know, you use it even if you think you are the, the most cynical person in the world, you still otherwise, you know, you wouldn't be alive. So, um, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's instinctive more than anything else. And uh, and as I said, I, I can be very negative, but I, 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 I rationalize it, that obviously, that I don't really believe in my negativity. <laughs> Because otherwise I would be doing something else. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, we'll leave it there. Okay. Thank you so much. Ple Amazing. Pleasure is mine. Thanks for listening. To stay up to date, you can follow along on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and distributed by Orla Omori and Alex Hall. 
If you want to get in touch with feedback or a recommendation for a guest, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. And finally, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.